Please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 38. If you're new to the Bible, if it's been a long time since you've been back to church, Genesis is the very first book in the Bible. And those large numbers are the chapter divisions. Those small numbers are the verse divisions. We're going to look at all of the verses in chapter 38. You almost said I was going to, almost I was going to say all the chapters in Genesis, but it's all the verses in chapter 38. But before we go to the Lord, or before we go and study, submit our, our time together to the Lord uh, under his word, let's submit ourselves now and come to him in prayer, asking for his blessing on us as we study his word together. Father, this is your word, and your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Constrain our hearts this morning to walk in your light, to walk under your word, knowing that it is here for our good and our eternal joy in you. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know about you, but uh, I, growing up, was never the greatest storyteller. When I would want to tell a story to my family and my sister, who is here this morning, she can account for this. There would be times where I would remember a detail that needed to be added to the story. And so I'd start the story, and then I would say, you know what, I've really got to back up and tell you this part. And then I'd start it on that, like, you know what, to really help that out, let me tell you another conversation, and that'll add some color. And then five minutes later, I would finally return back to the story that I had started with and be able to end some things up. I don't know about you. Maybe you have had that similar experience. I think I've gotten better at telling stories now that I'm older. Not, not good, just serviceable, but uh, try. But Moses, as he is writing the book of Genesis, he does, he, he is an incredible storyteller. He's not making this up. These aren't stories, myths. Rather, these are historical accounts, but he is weaving them together in such a way that shows that he is a master. And when you have mastered the rules of something, it's then that you can break the rules for something. And he does that here in Genesis chapter 38. Normally, when you start in on a subject or a person and begin telling a story like Moses does in the previous chapter with Joseph... We would expect, and and most of us who have read through Genesis or have heard the story of Joseph, we're interested, tell us more about this man named Joseph and what happens to him when he is sold into slavery. But it's almost as if Moses is, he's breaking the, the rules of storytelling and he says, let's back up, let me tell you about his brother Judah. And he does that for a number of reasons. He does it so that we will be able to put Joseph and Judah side by side. Chapters 38 and chapters 39 really ought to be read together. And I would encourage you later today, this week, read through Genesis 38 and 39. And you're going to see how these two chapters, or Moses, is, is showing us the failures of Judah in chapter 38... And how in the very same instance, very similar temptation, the faithfulness of Joseph. 
But there, there's more to it than that. Moses is being directed by God to pull back the curtain, so to speak, on all of our ugliness that seems to hide in the shadows. Moses is giving us, once again, an account of the scandalous, shameful failures of those whom God has chosen to be his people. And what's shocking is that Judah is not an insignificant person in the storyline of the Bible. Judah is significant. The family descending from him, he is the the fourth son, not the first. The three older sons, we'll see. You may remember they were disqualified because of what they have done. Judah, by all rights and purposes, should have been disqualified. We would think he would be. But Judah, through Judah, the nation or the tribe of Judah becomes prominent, the leader, the leader tribe of the tribes of Israel. More than that, it is from Judah through whom the kings of Israel come. More than that, it is through Judah who Christ comes. And part of what we're going to see this morning, a big part, is that the Lord reminds us that there is no one, no matter how perverted, no matter how dysfunctional, how far gone, how far gone, no sin, no guilt, no shame that takes us beyond the mercy of God. And simply reading through this chapter is one of those. It'll give you an experience of where you'll ask, why is this in the Bible? I hope this morning, as we walk through it, you will be able to answer that very question. And through it, be able to see not only things about God, but you will be able to see the mercy and the grace of God to us all in Christ. So look with me at verses 1 to 5. Here we see this downward trajectory of Judah that begins, all right? So read verse 1. It came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers. We might say he went down. That's really the the, the proper phrasing. And that's significant because chapter 39 begins that same way. Joseph is, is brought down from his family down to Egypt. Again, they're side by side. But he is brought down. He departs from his brothers and visited a certain Adolamite whose name was Hira. His is a, a, a man, a friend of his. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite. The, her father, this woman, his name is Shua. And Judah marries her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son and called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son and she called his name Onan. And she conceived yet again. And this would have been many years later or or some years later. And she called his name and he called his name Shelah. He that is Judah was at Kezib when she bore him. What we see is very first off in Judah, I'm sorry, in Genesis chapter 38 verse 1 is this downward trajectory that Judah leaves his family and literally he goes down. This is a a geographical descent. He is going southward. But more than that, it signals a, a spiritual descent. He is leaving his family. 
And, and we are not to read our 21st century where kids go out and they leave the home. That We're not to read our situation back into their times. You see, remember, it is the family of Abraham and Isaac, now Jacob, also known as Israel, him and his family, his brothers, they're the ones whom God has chosen. Through them, the blessing will come to the nations. In them, God has promised to work. He has covenanted himself, linked himself with them. And so when we read that Judah is departing from his brothers, going down, we are not to see merely that he's looking for a a nicer home. We are to see that he is descending spiritually. He is in He is, in one sense, abandoning not only his family, but the promises of God. God had promised to work through him and his family. And he leaves willingly, and he goes. And more than that, he replaces his gathering with God's people, his being with God's people, with a, a new community, rather than being with his brothers where he belongs, where he ought to be, he begins to join and become friends with a man named Hira the Adolamite. He is a a Canaanite. And we are going to find that Hira, this man named Hira, he encourages and enables Judah in all sorts of wickedness. He is kind of introducing Judah into Canaanite life. What is Canaanite religion like? What is the Canaanite way of living like? What's the lifestyle of the Canaanites? Hira is that person who is introducing him to it all. And then he does one other thing. He marries a Canaanite woman. Remember Abraham refused to allow Isaac, his son, to be married to a Canaanite woman? Same thing with his son. Isaac refused to allow Jacob to be married to a Canaanite woman. Didn't want that for his children. It was not to be. It was not to happen. It was against God's will. And here, when we read this... We should keep that in the back of our minds. The concern of the scriptures is that when God's people marry someone who is not faithful to the Lord, someone rather who is not a believer in the Lord, someone who is outside of God's community, has not trusted him nor is a follower of God, it brings danger and disaster not only to that person, but to their entire family. But he, he marries her. And if you notice, it's not so clear in the New King James. But in verse 2, and Judah saw there a daughter of a Canaanite woman, and a few words later, and he married. The literal wording of that would be, and he took her. Which is simply a way of saying he married her, but that wording is significant. It's the same word that we saw back in Genesis chapter 3, when Eve saw and took the, the fruit That God had commanded her not to. It's the same wording we find later on in Genesis chapter 6. When the sons of God look at the daughters of men and they saw and they took them. We see this whenever that language is brought up in the book of Genesis. It it is negative. And here again, it's showing us that Judah is a man who is driven by his passions. Driven by his desires, his wants, what he feels he needs. He's a man who's following his heart. If we can use the, the phrases, the, the wording of our day. 
And all of this paints a picture of who Judah is becoming. He's living in the land that God has promised, but he's not trying to be a blessing to these people. Rather, he's merely trying to conform to these people. He's trying to fit in. He's abandoned God, abandoned his promises, abandoned his, his people, preferring the company of those who do not know, nor those who care about the Lord. He is following his own heart, and even as his heart leads him down, around, and away from the path and the promises of God. Friends, doesn't this sound familiar to us? Isn't this same, this same pathway trodden by so many people who had professed at one time to call themselves Christians? This is the same kind of downward trajectory that has become so common for so many of us who have been amongst Christians for many years. We have seen it in our own families, in our children, in our grandchildren, our cousins, our parents, our nephews and nieces. For years, someone attends church with their family, and then their attendance grows less and less consistent, more and more sporadic, until it vanishes altogether away. One writer described it like this, described his experience watching his friends that he was growing up with in high school begin to fall away from the Lord. He says, my friends and I went to youth group together, to summer camp together, to accountability group together. We were young and mischievous and stupid, but we were also trying to become serious, mindful, and genuine Christians. Then college came and our our lives meandered. Some went here, others went there, still others went nowhere. Sure, they started at one church and then another and then another, but after a while, their erratic commitment became non-commitment and their non-commitment became lethargy and their lethargy became paralysis and their paralysis eventually started to look like death. That flicker of mindfulness had finally been snuffed out through well-intentioned inattention. Men and women, teens... The downward trajectory, this slippery slope away from Christ, begins gradually. It does not happen overnight. It's like slowly cooling bathwater. You start the bath, it's, it's, it's ridiculously hot. You ease yourself in, and then before you know it, that water's freezing, and you're not sure when it happened. You just know at one point it goes from warm, and then all of a sudden it's cold. How did it get so cold? Watch yourselves. Watch your hearts. And when we begin to cool to the Lord in our affections, that when we notice that our, our desires for God and for his word are growing stale, that the truths we sing and the word we preach feels old, common, Know that your soul is in danger. Stoke the fire of a fervent heart. Ask the Lord to return to you the joy of his salvation. Our hearts are going to go up and down in fervency. But it is us that we need to go to the Lord and ask him to work and renew us from within. To humble ourselves and repent. Of course, Judah doesn't do any of these things. He, at the moment, he is happily married. He has three sons with whom he is happy. 
But this happy home is about to be shattered into a thousand pieces. Verse 6, we see the beginning of these family problems. Then Judah took a wife for his, for Ur, his firstborn. This would have been a Canaanite wife for his Canaanite son. And her name was Tamar. But Judah, but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. And Judah said to Onan, go in into your brother's wife and marry her, and raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his, and it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he emitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. For he said, lest he, Shelah, also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. All right, so these verses are describing an ancient custom that if we're just admitting, it's weird. What's happening here is the the custom is called leveret marriage. It comes from this Latin word, levir, which means brother-in-law. And the custom was was developed at this time to, for, for a number of reasons. One, to make sure that the family bloodline was secure, that the heirs and the family would grow and continue to increase. It was also developed as a way to protect this woman. What is she to do if her husband dies? In that time and in that place and in this culture, women weren't able to just go and, and begin living a life on their own. Is she to be Barren and useless and helpless, uh, uh, cast aside from society and outside for the rest of her life. So as a way to mend this, cultures around this time began to practice a custom that to us seems just strange. But to them was absolutely normal. In fact, it was mandated for this exchange to happen. And it only makes sense not in a romantic time like us where we, you know, we date someone, we get to know them, but it makes better sense if your wife or your spouse is given to you as a part of an arrangement with your parents and her parents or his parents. So what would happen is husband might marry, and typically men were much older than the women they married. He might marry a young woman arranged by his family. He marries her. He's going out. He's working out in the field. Something happens. He dies because men are typically dumber than their wives, you know, putting themselves in dumber situations, as I illustrated yesterday. And um, he, he, he goes, he, he gets himself killed, and what's his wife to do? And so she is now given as a wife to his younger brother, to her brother-in-law. And this next son, this next husband, he is to go into her there to have children and her firstborn son will not carry on his name. It will carry on her first husband's, his older brothers, while the rest of the children will be his in name, legally and in, in status. The difficulty is for the younger son is that what this means is that the inheritance that his kids would get is now diminished because that first son, which he is raising, whom he is raising, he gets the inheritance of his older brother. So Ur dies. Tamar is given as a wife to the next son, Onan. And Onan 
doesn't want to marry her. He doesn't like this arrangement. So he does a little ancient custom of uh, child uh, protection and uh, birth protection. And, and, and as a result of this, he, he is killed by the Lord. And I don't want to pass over that statement. There are very few times in the Bible where someone we are told is so evil that the Lord puts them to death. Two of Judah's sons are so evil that the Lord puts them to death. That speaks powerfully to the justice and the judgment of God. That he who is good and holy cannot endure we who are not. He cannot abide sinners. This is the righteous judgment of God on all sin. And the Bible is clear. All of us are sinners and the payment for sin is nothing short of death. And the the truth of the Bible, the truth of this world is that you and I will either die for our sins or someone else will. And the hope of the gospel is that Christ has. We hear these two sons rebelling against the Lord, perniciously, particularly evil. And the Lord puts them to death. Judah, in his response, is self-serving, callous. Rather than keeping Tamar with him, which he should have done, He sends her back home, which would have been an enormous act of shame upon her. He is acting as if she is the problem. As if there's something wrong with her that's causing the death of his older, of his two older boys. And so he sends her back home and he he says, "Uh, until Shalem, my youngest son, he's really way too young right now to be married. But when he gets older, then I'll give him to you in marriage. And it's, it's almost as if what he is doing here is he's trying to cut her out of the family. It's like he's going, opening up the family photo albums and, and cutting her out so that she no longer is present, so that she no longer has these benefits. Judah is being incredibly insensitive, incredibly mean-spirited here, wrongfully cutting Tamar out of the family. And he publicly disgraces her by sending her back to her family. And up to this point, Tamar is passive in this chapter. She's acted upon by others, but she is never the actor. From, from verse 12 on, she creates a, a scandalous scheme by which she will be able to get back into this family. And part of what I want us to see is that this scheme, though wrong, though scandalous, though sinful, is itself driven by faith. Read with me verse 12 to 24. Now in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died and Judah was comforted and went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friends Hira the Adolamite. And it was told Tamar, saying, look, Your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with the veil, and wrapped herself and sat in an open place, which was on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown, and she was not given to him as a wife. 
When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, a prostitute, because she had covered her face. Then he turned to her by the way and said, Please, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? And he said, I will send a young goat from the flock. So she said, Will you give me a pledge till you send it? Then he said, What pledge shall I give you? So she said, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. Then he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. So she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. And Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, the Adolamite, Hira, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand. But Hira did not find her. And he asked the men of that place, saying, Where is the harlot, the prostitute, who was openly by the roadside? And they said, There is no harlot in this place. So he turned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also, the men of the place said there was no harlot in this place. Then Judah said, Let her take them for herself, lest we be put to shame. For I sent this young goat, and you have not found her. And it came to pass about three months after that Judah was told, saying, Tamar was your daughter-in-law. Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by prostitution, by harlotry. So Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Tamar conspires this scandalous, this sinful scheme by which she is going to take advantage of her father-in-law so that she can have a child. What's motivating her, I believe, we are not told explicitly, and so I am Absolutely, I'm beginning a little speculation here, okay? But the guess is, we are driven to ask, why does Tamar wait for Shelah? Why does Tamar wait? Some commentators suggest that she may have been waiting sometime between 15 and 20 years for Shelah to grow. Normally, in her culture and in her time, a woman... Like this, she would have married someone else in her own community. Or she would have become a cult prostitute. She does neither. For possibly up to 20 years, she waits. Why? The only answer that I and many others can conceive is that she, unlike Judah who despises the promises of God, does not care for his family, nor for the the covenant that God has made with his family. Tamar treasures those promises. Tamar remains loyal. Tamar trusts. Normally it is the unbelieving spouse that, that pulls the believing spouse into idolatry and unfaithfulness. But here... It is her who seems to treasure God's promises and God's covenant with his people far more than Judah does. And this is what explains why Tamar launches such a scandalous scheme to put aside her her widow's robes that after many years she has still been wearing. To dress up like a prostitute and put herself in a place where she would be engaging in such action with her father-in-law. 
I don't want to cover up the fact that Tamar is doing something wrong here, scandalous, absolutely sinful, but she seems to be acting in faith, much like Rahab would many years later, who lies and does wrong, but she does it as an act of faith in God. But I want just to see more. What what does this tell us about Judah? What does this tell us about Judah? He is guilty of sexual immorality and prostitution, absolutely. He is an idolater because to even marry, I'm sorry, to to go into a cult prostitute, what that engaged with was not just the sexual act itself, it was also to engage in idolatry, the worship of, of false gods and idols. He is doing both simultaneously. But do you notice how routine this is for Judah? He's the kind of man, Tamar knows that he is the kind of man that even after all these years, all she needs to do to seduce him is to set up a tent or a small booth alongside a road where she knows he's going to be walking, to dress up as a harlot, and he's going to come and make her business proposition. It's so routine to him. It's just normal, ordinary, casual business. He comes up to her, he works out a payment, hands over some collateral, swipe the card, scan the barcode, and voila, payment's accepted. And Judah's good friend, Hira the Adolamite, he is there to, to work it all out. But there's a problem when Hira arrives, this prostitute isn't there any longer. And, and to save face, let's just look it over. We'll, we'll just ignore it. Hey, I gave her that stuff. She's not there. I, I tried to, to payment. And it's, isn't it ironic? The man that is fine with committing prostitute is so concerned about his having done his part to properly pay for a service rendered to him. Isn't, isn't that ironic? Isn't that just the greatest form of hypocrisy? What a sickening picture God gives us of his people. And then to add everything to insult, to injury, at the very end of this chapter, when it comes to light that Tamar is pregnant, she's beginning to show, and he hears about it, he sends his men to go fetch her so that they can burn her. Perhaps he finally now thinks that he can be rid of her for good. Perhaps he's simply trying to spare his family shame by shedding this woman's blood, or perhaps he's Bullish hypocrisy is just an attempt to cover his own sense of guilt. Perhaps it's all of these things. Whatever the reason, he wants Judah dead. The picture of God's people up to this point is not flattering. The eldest brother, Reuben, he has slept with his stepmom. The next two sons, Simeon and Levi, they commit war crimes and then are helped by the majority of their brothers. In the previous chapter, we saw that the ten eldest sons of Jacob capture Joseph, throw him into a pit with the intention of killing him, only to be swayed from that course. And so they do the better thing by selling him into slavery. And the question is, why? Why does the Lord tell us all of these things? It would have been understandable 
for him to just gloss over them. Isn't that what we often do with our heroes, with the ones that we respect and love? Excuse their actions, gloss over their faults. In fact, early Jewish commentators do just that with this passage. They blame, they, they try to put all the blame on Tamar as if she's the one in the wrong and, and, and Judah's just the helpless victim here. Others try to get really cute with the way they read and interpret the passage and they, they try to say that actually God is the one who, or he is the one who ordered Judah to do all that he is doing here. What we find is that the Lord wants us to know and be honest about those whom we would respect. Israel, God wants Israel to know who they really are. Israel doesn't descend from white knights and righteous people. They are not the chosen people of God because they are somehow righteous or better or good. They are not more special than those around them. No, God chooses Judah and he chose Israel before him because God, because God is merciful and he is gracious. He didn't choose Judah to lead his people because he was good, but because he is merciful and gracious. And that is the only reason God has been merciful and gracious to any of us. It's not because you and I are particularly religious God does not find your hard religious work as particularly favorable toward him so that now he will show mercy and grace. The very definition of mercy and grace means that it is mercy and grace before anything good comes. God does not show mercy and grace to us because we are religious, because we are good, because we have been baptized, because our parents are religious, because we go to church regularly, because we try to read the Bible, because we try to pray, because we we listen to others on the radio or on our podcast who, who talk about spiritual things. There is no human reason why God shows us mercy and grace except that he shows us mercy and grace because he is merciful and gracious. God wants us to see where our sinful way and our selfish hearts will take us. At home among his family, Judah was to inherit leadership among the brothers. He was to inherit the promises of God. The kingly line was to come through him. But but here, Judah not only buries his wife, he buries his two eldest sons because of their unchecked lawlessness. And because of his own sexual immorality, Judah is taken advantage of easily. And he unknowingly, but still, he commits incest. All of this is to Judah's shame. Though all the time, by the end of verse 24, he is still happily ignorant of all of it. And as Judah follows his heart, his feet take him deeper and deeper and deeper into guilt before God and shame before others. If there is anyone in this passage who deserves to die, deserves to be burned, it is Judah, not Tamar. Friends, this is the way more traveled in our world. We let secret sins grow, visiting them in our minds, on our phones, on our computers, answering their calls, answering their texts, flirting them with them over messages. 
exchanging messages back and forth with that person at work who is not our spouse, making one small step after another, barely registering how by degrees God has become distant to us and our sin has become normal. The world tells us that porn is normal, lying on our taxes, being lazy at work, a little drunkenness. All this is okay. The pathway we are on seems normal and fine and ordinary and easy and routine, but the way it leads to is death and destruction. In his book, Tempted and Tried, Russell Moore describes the invention that was uh, created to kill, uh, particularly cows, slaughter them for, uh, for, uh, well, for consumption, but to do so in a way that was kind and humane. Not that the desire was to kill in such a humane way, because beef, the beef industry realized that at the moment, uh, high-stress moments, when cows are put under a lot of stress, like what would normally happen on slaughtering day, The cow's bodies release hormones throughout, and those hormones downgrade the quality of the meat. And so the beef industry, in an attempt to try to figure out a way that they could release or or prevent those hormones from being released and, and keep the quality of the meat superb, they began to investigate how they can slaughter and kill cows without the cows being stressed at all. And a scientist, a young woman after studying these things for a lengthy time, came up with a a, a series by which cows are now slaughtered. She wrote that cows need to not be put in times or need to be put in places of high stress. The key was to keep everything familiar, everything normal, to make the day of slaughter exactly like every other day. Nothing changes, nobody's wearing anything unique or different. The places where they go, how they get there, all of it must remain the same. Workers shouldn't yell at cows. No cattle prods ought to be necessary. Just keep them contented and comfortable. And they'll go wherever you lead. Don't surprise them. Don't unnerve them. And above all, don't yell at them. And don't hurt them. At least until you kill them. Russell Moore continues describing this process, writing, Along the way, this scientist devised a new technology that has revolutionized the ways of big slaughter operations. In this system, the cows aren't prodded off the track, but are led, in silence, onto a ramp. They go through a a squeeze chute, a gentle pressure device that mimics a mother's nuzzling touch. The cattle continue down the ramp onto a smoothly curving path. There are no sudden turns. The cows experience a sensation of going home, the same kind of way they have traveled so many times before. And as they mosey along the path, they don't even notice when their hooves are no longer touching the ground. A conveyor belt has slowly slowly lifts them and gently upward. And then, in a twinkling of an eye, A blunt instrument levels a surgical strike right between their eyes. And their transition from livestock to meat. And they're never aware enough to be alarmed by any of it. The pioneer of this technology commends it to the slaughterhouses and effectually gives it a nickname. She calls it the stairway to heaven. 
Reminds me of Proverbs chapter 7. Solomon writes, For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along down the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner, she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And, and with bold face, she says to him, I have offered sacrifices today. I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, color, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us make our fill of love toward morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know it will cost him his life. We can ease these, we can erase the messages We can try to be discreet. We can go to private browsing. We can steal and no one will know. But we are on the pathway to destruction. Friends, every one of us this morning is at danger of putting our feet on this stairway to heaven. Being completely contented and comfortable. Not realizing that around the next gentle turn, we will find ourselves transitioned to death. Sin does this. It lulls us into feeling safe and secure while it grows in the darkness, but it will not stay there. Do not take your sin lightly. Fortunately, the story of Judah does not stop there. Judah is about to be exposed in his shame and guilt made known to all. Look with me at verse 25. So when she was brought out, she she sent to her father-in-law saying, "By by the man to whom these belong, those are those things that she took from Judah before, by the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, please, determine whose things these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Notice that she doesn't publicly embarrass him. She simply ident- she sends these identif- identifiers to him. So Judah acknowledged them and said, She has been more righteous than I, because I did not give her to Shelah my son, and he never knew her again. Now it came to pass at the time for giving birth that, behold, twins were in her womb. And so it was, when she gave... When she was giving birth, that the one put out his hand, and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand, saying, This one came out first. Then it happened, as he drew back his hand, that his brother came out unexpectedly. And she said, How did you break through? This breach be upon you. Therefore his name was called Perez. 
which means breakthrough or breach. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zerah. What we see in these last few verses, Judah's sin becomes known and he repents. He genuinely repents. He's not just sorry that his his sin has been made public. Here is a man from this point forward who was a changed man. He doesn't say Tamar is righteous, but that she is more righteous than I in this matter. And we see that he never again has physical relations with Tamar. More than this, uh, we, we see other examples later of Judah's repentance. Later in the book of Genesis, we find that Judah has moved back with his family. And he is the one who appears to lead his brothers down to Egypt. He is the one who, who leads the way. And when, it, when he is dealing with Joseph unknowingly, and he is concerned about the welfare of their youngest son, the youngest brother, uh, Benjamin, it is he who bargains and is willingly volunteers to allow himself to be put in prison instead of Benjamin. What this reveals about Judah is that he genuinely repented to the Lord and he began to follow him. And as a result, the Lord renews Judah. From that sinful act with Tamar, God gave Judah two sons to replace those whom he had lost, Perez and Zerah. And that same situation, that we, a similar situation to what we find with Jacob and Esau, we find repeated now with Perez and Zerah. And do you know what is astonishing? It is not that, it is that, it is not Shelah, the, the legitimate son of Judah through whom the promises of God flow. It is through Perez. What are those promises and blessings that flowed through Tamar's son, Perez, it is, we find this in Genesis 49, that leadership among the tribes of Israel will pass, not to righteous Joseph's line, but to Perez, to Judah's, through Perez. And it is through Perez that Boaz comes, who will love and marry another woman that ought to be despised by the world's standards, that woman named Ruth, whom the world had forgotten. More than that, it is through Perez, Judah's son by Tamar, that the kings of Israel come. And finally, we learn in Matthew chapter 1 that it is Jesus himself that comes by Perez from Tamar. What we see is that for those who repent of their sin and turn back to God, God not only pardons, he restores We read the story of Judah and Tamar and we cannot, in our world, we would not be able to cancel them fast enough. We would want to put as much distance between them and us as possible. That is a dysfunctional family. We want to look like we are innocent and good. But the verses that we had read earlier in 1 John tell us that if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and his truth is not in us. But with those who repent, we have this promise in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just 
to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is the promise that Judah and Tamar were banking on. That is the promise that you and I must bank on before God. And do you notice, friend, God is faithful and just. Well, we do not think of justice as being the, the hope and the answer for those who do wrong, do we? Those who do wrong, our hope is in mercy and grace, not in justice. For if we get justice, then we are doomed. But God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from our sin. Why is God just? Because his justice has been paid for in the death of Christ. Your hope this week, my hope this week, is in Christ and in him alone. So that when we confess and look to Christ, God is faithful and just, having put on him and punished him for the sins that I and you have committed. Friends, this is hope. So whether you are sinful like Judah, having committed horrible evils in your past, bleeds red, or whether you are like Judah, having been sinned against, this passage offers beautiful hope and promise. It offers beautiful hope and promise to every one of us who is waiting on God to, to work in our kids and our grandkids. For years, Judah had left the family. For years, Judah wanted nothing to do with God. But God was not done with Judah. Some of you are longing and praying and waiting for God to restore, to work in your kids and grandkids. This passage gives us the utmost confidence. Not in our power to persuade for Jacob and the rest of the brothers. They're, they're nowhere in this story. But in God to work and to have mercy. Let us look to Christ and rejoice in him this week. Father in heaven, all our hope is in you. All our hope is in you. Oh, have mercy on us. And remind us weekly, daily, moment by moment to fight sin, to repent and to turn to you, and to rest secure in your grace. In Christ's name, our Savior. Amen.